Welcome to the Truth Lover webinar and podcast presented by Love and Truth Party. Love and Truth Party is a self-organizing, self-replicating community and movement of love and awakening, a wisdom school facilitating and celebrating the true nature of the human being. We exist to empower the deep realization and integration of unitive consciousness of one human being and to inspire action in the world from this place as New Earth Ninjas. We do so in the spirit of play, holding the paradox that all is well, even and including all collective crises, while simultaneously being moved to act to lessen suffering and serve the creation of conscious culture and society. Our projects include distributing a million love letters from the universe, inviting people to receive love and care in these, and within the happiness hacks and other resources found on loveandtruthparty.org and our social media, to then pay it forward in a social experiment of what it is to be the change. Today, we are thrilled and honored to be joined by Dean Radin. Dean Radin, PhD, is a chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Science and Associated Distinguished Professor of Integral and Transpersonal Psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's also author of several extraordinary books. I highly recommend all of them, uh, Entangled Minds, The Conscious Universe, and Supernormal. I've all read and enjoyed thoroughly. Uh, I've had a sneak peek at Real Magic, which is uh, Dean's latest book, and um, really excited to explore this and a broader topic of the future of science with Dean today. So Dean, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Truth Lover. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And a, a quick question. When is, uh, when is Real Magic out? When is it released? On April 10th. April 10th. Okay, great. So we haven't got too long to wait. That's superb. Now, some people might be a little bit curious as to what a scientist is doing writing a book about magic. That doesn't uh, probably uh, com com compute for many people. Can you, can you speak to that? Uh, if you had asked me two years ago, it, would I write a book about magic? I might have thought, uh, yes, but perhaps about illusory magic, you know, like Harry Houdini magic, because I know something about that, uh, and possibly fictional magic uh, along the lines of Harry Potter, but not a book about the real deal. And it's partially because I didn't know that much about it. I mean, like most people, you see what, what you see in the movies and in television programs. But starting about a year and a half ago, uh, I became more interested in how to explain the, the phenomena that I've been studying for almost 40 years, which sounds a little strange that how, why would I take so long to worry about that explanation? And the, the answer is that I've primarily been an empiricist for my, my career. Uh, that means that you test things in the laboratory. And so I don't usually require a clear explanation as to why something happens. My interest up, up to now has been primarily uh, people talk about psychic phenomena. Can we test them in the lab and see whether this is true or not? So the proof-oriented question of whether they exist, that has been settled already about 20 to 30 years ago. The, most of the research today is looking at process like what factors are important in making an effect appear or not appear. And it's an extremely complicated question. And lots of things can be done in the laboratory without having a very good explanation, at least not a fundamental explanation, as to why does it occur in the first place. 
So I started thinking about that. And maybe this has something to do with age. The, the older you get, the more you're interested in philosophy. So I started looking into the philosophy of science and the way that we create models about, and also explanations about how things work. And if you look through the literature in parapsychology, what you find is that most of the models that people have tried to develop are, are fitting within the reductive materialism worldview, which is the worldview that science has used and is used extremely effectively. So we, we could not make the technology that is allowing us to do this podcast without reductive materialism. So we definitely don't want to throw that away. And it's useful for all kinds of things. The vast majority of scientists are working within that worldview all the time. Most people assume that that worldview is correct, whether they're scientists or not. But it, one of the reasons why psychic and mystical experience in particular are considered a fringe topic in the academic world is because those phenomena do not fit into the scientific worldview. So, and given that we know empirically that these things exist, we have a problem. And so I became very curious about that problem. How can you, on the one hand, have a very successful worldview, but it doesn't account for something that we know to be true? Well, among the, there are consequences of this. The, because you're, you're pushing topics away from, from the funding sources and the university environments and all of the places where we normally study things, we end up in a situation where you have the majority of the population around the world who believes in these phenomena and a very large majority, up to 90% or more of people who report these experiences. They may not say they believe it because they don't know how to interpret it either, but they report the experiences happen. So on the one hand, you have the vast majority of people around the world, at least 6 billion, let's say, who, who know about these phenomena. That's why they're attractive in terms of our entertainment. And yet we have almost nobody in the academic world where you can get a doctorate in studying Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You can't study psychic phenomena. <laughs> and so I thought, well, that's, that's pretty strange. So what, what this in, uh, caused me to do was to re-examine the assumptions in reductive materialism. And you find that there are other doctrines that, that are part of it, things like physicalism and assumptions about causality and so on. Just and, to, uh, to, yes, to clarify there, would physicalism be the assertion that matter or physicality is primarily real? I haven't heard that term before. Yeah, physicalism uh, pertains more to the idea that if you can't measure something, then it essentially doesn't exist. Wow. That brings to mind uh, an Arthur Koestler quote of the, the, the logical fallacy, the fashionable logical fallacy of the day that if science cannot measure it, then it doesn't exist. Yeah. Which, which is a logical fallacy, of course. It doesn't make, make right. any sense. But, but nevertheless, the, in, in many cases, the, if you can only experience something and we don't have a way of measuring it, it is excluded from science. You see that actually very clearly, not only with psychic phenomena, but, but also in cases like people who do distant healing or even any kind of healing. It's called energy healing, subtle energy, and so on. We don't have any instruments that can clearly measure what this is that people report. And yet, a lot of people use it because it does something. People can feel something, but we don't have instruments. So it is excluded 
from medical research where it probably ought to be. Which creates the absurdity of science saying, for example, uh, qi does not exist because we cannot measure it. But anyone that's practiced qigong for half an hour, certainly for, for weeks on end, knows without a shadow of a doubt that there is something real that we might call qi that uh, is, um, yeah, very, it's, it's, there's, there's, a, there's a tragedy to be dismissing all this experience as, as, as unreal because we can't measure it. Yeah, so it all has to do with our worldview. So that we have a worldview that, that is extremely powerful, but it also has blinders. And so I decided to look outside the blinders to see if there were other ways of thinking about the nature of reality that would be more compatible with psychic and mystical experience where it would no longer be seen as anomalous because within the blinders, it is definitely anomalous. Mm -hmm. Well, I like anomalies because when you look at the history of science, you always find that the major breakthroughs happen when we determine that an anomaly is not a mistake, but an indication that our assumptions were wrong. So I'm convinced by my own experience, by experience of other people, and what I see in the laboratory that some psychic phenomena are real. So it's not an anomaly for me. The challenge is, how do, what do we do with it? So the first place I, I decided to look for an expansion on, on a worldview was one that's been around for at least 50,000 years as compared to science, which is a couple of hundred years. And that's what is generally known as the esoteric literature. So we're going from shamanism, through Pythagoras, through Plato, through Hermeticism, uh, Neoplatonism, Gnosticism, the Kabbalah, you name it, all the way up into more modern times with the Rosicrucians, with the Freemasons, possibly with uh, the, the Knights Templar, and then uh, Theosophy, New Thought in the United States, uh, Christian Science, Mind Science, and then this whole genre having to do with affirmations and positive psychology. So that, that's all considered outside of the mainstream. It's declared esoteric in the sense that it is not exoteric. It's the, it's the exoteric is the world we all agree we, we live in and that's what's taught in the universities. The esoteric one is, is below the surface and it, mainly because it's been suppressed largely by the church. Whatever, you pick the church that you wish and then you'll find that it has been suppressed. So, I, be, I would thought it was very interesting that we have these very long traditions of other cosmologies, other ways of thinking about the nature of reality. And even more that if you do a synthesis where your intention is to look at what's similar in these cosmologies, as opposed to comparing and contrasting. And in the, in the scholarly tradition, you look at nuances of differences because culture shapes ideas and so on. But I was interested in what, what's a common thread well, the common thread is very clear, and it, it's been called words like the perennial philosophy, it, which you find this in many different languages and also throughout history. And what it means is that the common thread in the esoteric traditions is that consciousness is fundamental. So in a Western philosophical perspective, it would be called idealism. And even in today, you find it being words like neutral monism and panpsychism are becoming much more popular to talk about. And they all are addressing this issue of how do we account for internal experience? Because from the, the, the standard Western science perspective is we're a hunk of meat that's put together in a, in a particular way where the meat somehow causes to arise this sense of subjectivity, our awareness. 
that's where most of the funding and action is in science today. And yet that model does not account very well for, for not only for experience, but certainly for things like psychic phenomena. And it creates this, uh, this hard problem that, of course, is only really a problem from, that, um, from those previous assumptions that we are primarily physical. And, and therefore, this, this question becomes curious. But without those assumptions, and uh, if we assume consciousness is primary, then, of course, there's no hard problem that, that, that disappears. No, there's no problem at all. And, and this is pretty common among problems and anomalies. They, they're all indicating that something doesn't fit. So the something that doesn't fit in this case seems to be that the esoteric tradition is generally dismissed as superstition because a lot of it revolves around notions of magic. So what I mean by magic is when you look at, at all of these traditions, they're all talking about magic because from, from the perspective of consciousness is fundamental, the notion that mind can manipulate matter is a given because matter is coming, is emerging out of mind in the first place. That's what it, that's one of the concepts. So you do a synthesis of magical traditions as well. And you try to find what's the commonality across cultural, across history. And you find it falls into three classes. One class is divination. So in the modern terms, we'd say precognition, remote viewing, clairvoyance. That's what is meant by divination. And there's a million different methods that have been developed. We're all familiar with them. The other class is, a second class is call, I call force of will, which is the notion that you're, you can impress your will or intention onto the world and it will change as a result. Uh, in the laboratory, we call it uh, psychokinesis, mind-matter interaction effects. Third category is uh, I would call theurgy, which is uh, two Greek words stuck together, uh, and it means roughly um, God work, theo and urgy, God work. But what it, what is referring to is the idea that there are independent spirits, there are somehow independent intelligences out there somehow, and under the right conditions, you can ask for favors, and if you're very lucky, they will do you favors. And if you're not so lucky, they'll possess you and, and it's, it becomes quite bad. So that, those are the magical traditions, those three elements. In a laboratory, we would call theurgy the study of survival of consciousness. And it takes place in terms of things like mediumship studies and near-death studies, and things of that sort, reincarnation. So... This is why then I decided to write a book about magic because I realized that I, for, for the majority of my career, I had been studying what used to be called magic because I studied telepathy and precognition and clairvoyance and survival of bodily death, mostly in laboratory studies. And that is magic from that ancient perspective. So I'm, I'm not wearing a pointed hat and I don't consider myself a warlock. Uh, I did recently buy a magic wand just because <laughs> I wanted one. But I, you know, I don't use that in the laboratory, in, in which case... Uh, a future experiment, is, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. What, what is the implication then of science being brought to bear on these ancient ideas? And one of the things that you end up with is you need to revise materialism in a way where you don't throw it away. 
You can't throw it away. And this is the number one fear I hear from my academic colleagues, that you're, what you're saying, if it's true, we have to throw away all the textbooks and start over again. And that's just a fear. It is not the reality. The reality is that whatever it took in order to make this smartphone, we're not going to throw that away. So what else do we do? Well, we expand our assumptions. So the way I describe in, in the book, and by the way, here's a copy of the, here's a galley of the book. I put my notes in it. One of the things I have to develop in this book is, well, how do we both accommodate and value science as we currently understand it, but also expand it? so that we no longer need to think of magic as ancient and medieval, but something that's actually modern and a projection of future science. And so the, the answer is quite simple. The, you create a, a pyramid. This is the, this knowledge pyramid. So the bottom layer is physics and then chemistry, biology, psychology. And then the current idea is that you start with matter and energy, and that's the fundamental. And so somehow from that has to emerge awareness. So consciousness emerges out of it. That's what the neurosciences mostly believe. Well, each layer here is a way to carve up the nature of reality. It's, it's how we define disciplines in the academic world. Uh, there isn't that much crosstalk between the disciplines just because of the way that the, the bureaucracy works in, in academia. But nevertheless, it, it assumes that you have you have fundamental particles in physics and you find electrons in chemistry and biology and psychology, just like you find all the other elementary particles and they somehow emerge into more and more complex things. Well, the new assumption I would propose is that there's something underneath physics. And the thing underneath physics is already beginning to be talked about in science as a layer of information, a layer of symbolism, a layer of mathematics, I would go further and say it's actually a layer of consciousness because that is what the esoteric traditions say. They don't say that it's idealism in the sense of solipsism where the physical world is an illusion that doesn't exist. Rather, that the physical world and everything we know about it is an inference that we make from our own awareness and the physical world literally manifests. It emerges out of consciousness in some way. So the future of science, I think, is uh, going to become a much, uh, create a much more refined way of thinking about how do you start with pure awareness and emerge anything out of that. And there's already examples in mathematics where you see that this is happening. For example, in, in uh, G. Spencer Brown is a mathematician who died a, a number of years ago, but he created this very interesting uh, mathematical uh, thesis that if you start with nothing, you start with a pure void, that will persist forever, basically, because there's nothing to change in a void. But if you, if you simply make a single distinction, you draw a line in the void, all of mathematics falls out of that. And there are plenty of mathematicians, especially mathematical physicists, who expect that if you can start creating a mathematics, all of the physical world that we know can emerge out of that, because ultimately that's what elementary particles are, as far as we can tell. Well, it's not a big leap from there to linguistics, which is basically a different form of symbolism. Mathematics is one, linguistics is another. And you start immediately seeing links back into the magical literature. Magic is, is saturated with the idea of symbols as being the progenitors of stuff, of, of events. 
And so I, I draw many of these parallels to show how what was once thought to be magical ceremony and theater actually is, is tapping much deeper, I think, into the nature of reality than we had previously thought. And that's, again, why I think that this is a progenitor of, of what will eventually turn into a science where just as alchemy became chemistry and astrology became astronomy and herbalism became pharmaceuticals, there is a fourth form of, of which we'll call magic for want of a better term, which will turn into something new. We don't have a name for what it is yet, some kind of psychophysical reality or something like that. So that's, that's the essence of, of what this book is about. That's fascinating. I appreciate the, the, the summary. And it was exciting for me hearing you speak of going from the empirical study to the big story, that the big story, the philosophy was a sort of uh, um, a secondary consideration. My path had been rather the opposite. There was uh, anomalous phenomena and so on. And realizing that the worldviews that I was presented with were insufficient. They didn't account for my experience. And so looking for evidence support that supported a, a broader worldview or an expanded worldview. I remember finding Conscious Universe and other books of yours were the pieces of evidence amongst many, many others that started to provide the empirical data to support that expanded worldview. So it's very much the same one process, but from quite different angles. And it seems that it, this, this, this journey that science is on, that the human culture is on, that consciousness is on, we could say, it's going to have very, very practical implications, far beyond philosophy. We've, we've touched on a few of them. You talked about um, studying within, within healthcare, for example. Uh, is that something perhaps you can touch on what will become possible if doctors and researchers uh, you know, come to, if, if say in 50 years or 100 years or hopefully 10 years, <laughs> it just becomes accepted that mind is causative, that consciousness is causative, um, how, how might that have implications in healthcare in particular? It, it would change everything. Uh, and because it would change everything, if people began to accept this in, in a mainstream way, the structure of civilization itself will, will have to revi be revised. This is going to be resisted, as you can imagine, because nobody likes to revise the nature of civilization. <laughs> there's, too, there's too much power and status quo. Yeah. to stop it. Uh, nevertheless, that is one of the reasons, I think, why this topic is considered fringe. It, it is uncomfortable, and they kind of push it away. And, and by the way, in a very similar way to the topic of UFOs. Mm -hmm. We know that they're UFOs. Mm -hmm. we, we, don't have, we don't know what they are, I think, uh, but they're uncomfortable. So it, they're disruptive and maybe too disruptive, so we don't talk about it. But in the case of of our understanding of consciousness, probably the most immediate change uh, that will happen as a result of materialism being seen as not completely sufficient and, and in need of some expansion will be to change what happens to students in college or maybe even younger than college who are taught about a universe that has no purpose and that, that where they don't play in a meaningful role. In fact, that there's no meaning about anything. So I've I talk to students who uh, come out of college and they're very depressed, and they get this sense of nihilism and 
there's no meaning of anything, and so why should anybody do anything? Well, that's coming out of a worldview, which says that we live in a random place and there's no meaning. So given that I think that consciousness is way more important than it's been previously thought about, or at least taught about, suddenly meaning becomes much more central here, because even though we may not know purpose, we, the, who knows what universal purpose is and what our role in is it? Maybe we, we could be the equivalent of bits in a giant computer. So from any given one bit, it doesn't have much meaning. It's the collective that has the meaning, something like that. And, and, and we know that that one bit, if it feels that it has purpose or believes that it has purpose, whether that be ultimately real or not, that creates a very different experience for that bit physiologically. Uh, yeah, that it's a, so it's profoundly important whether we believe there is purpose or not, even if we cannot truly know whether there is purpose or not. Yes, we, we are as much machines that require meaning to operate as, as we need food. Mm-hmm. So it, meaning is a different kind of nutrition, which we don't generally think about, but it's very clear when you see the, the number of different groups that people join, some of which we look at and say, well, how in the world could they believe that? Because it gives them meaning. Mm-hmm. They, everyone craves the meaning all the time. So, so one of the, the first changes I think we'll see, and I, probably among younger people, is a notion that maybe the universe is not meaningless. Maybe, maybe life is more interesting than we've, we were th- told. And then the, the next stage is when we start to realize that if consciousness actually comes before physics, it means it also become, comes before space and time. It's prior to space and time. That immediately says that your awareness and my awareness are connected beyond space-time. There are no separate awarenesses in that kind of environment. So the notion of telepathy suddenly is trivial to understand, or difficult to understand, well, why can't I have perfect telepathy all the time? Mm-hmm. There are reasons for that, too. Mm-hmm. But it, it changes the notion of what we think we mean by groups of people, to say nothing of animals and everything else, Groups of people are, are connected in ways that we don't ordinarily see, not just from a social psychology perspective, a much deeper perspective as well. That, in some cultures, it'll be easier for that to be accepted. I think like in Southeast Asia, there's more of a, of a cultural notion that somebody is part of the culture. In the United States, we are cowboys, and, and cowboys are, are ruggedly independent. And that, that's why everybody has to have five guns. Never <laughs> know five guns. <laughs> so in some cultures are going to be much more resistive to these kinds of ideas. And I see that very clearly by the, the venues in which I'm invited to give talks. So almost everywhere outside of the United States, I've given talks at scientific conferences and business conferences at high tier levels, like major places. Never in the United States does that happen, except if it's private. So if, if it's uh, sub rosa or secret or private, then I can talk to basically anybody. But in terms of, of the, uh, the scientific and mostly somewhat journalistic mainstream in the United States, you cannot talk about this stuff. So it's, and it's reflective of the nature of the culture. So 
this is one of the reasons why I, I strongly suspect that we're going to see breakthroughs in this domain, probably first in China because of the cultural background and or in India or maybe just Southeast Asia in general, that there, there's much less resistance to these kinds of ideas and they have a different worldview to begin with. So this basically says that the, the cultural West, which, which includes Australia, I think, uh, will, be, will be playing catch up eventually. Yeah, and there's a piece in that that seems significant. You've used the word belief a couple of times that most neuroscientists believe that, um, that the consciousness sort of somehow arises from physical processes, for, for example. And it seems that this is, this is central to why there might be so much resistance, that people have strong beliefs, just as people have strong beliefs of a religious nature, or they believe that there are no UFOs. Or, or that, so when those belief structures, when those identities are challenged, it's, 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 uh, it's very difficult to have a balanced hearing and listening and say, well, let's ponder that, let's consider that, because it challenges their very sense of who I am. Right. And would it be true to say, I, in my not not being an empiricist, not being a scientist, I can be fairly, um, I feel a bit more freedom perhaps to be a little bit more casual in my language. So I might say that um, immaterialism or reductive materialism is a belief system that really is actually not borne out by the data, by the evidence of psychoneuroimmunology, by placebo effect, by energy healing, by parapsychology, by quantum mechanics, and so on and so on and so on. And that the view that we might say that consciousness is primary or at least integral to, or, or, or perhaps as a, a united view, and I'm, I'm hearing you pointing to where the materialism and the consciousness of, as primary are, are, are integrated. Um, I guess what I'm speaking to is I'm, I, I kind of make materialism the bad guy a little bit because it's not supported by evidence the idea that we're living in a primarily physical world isn't actually evidenced. The idea that we're living in a primarily non-physical world, that the, that the sort of core of each atom is 99.99999% space is, is actually very well evidenced. So this from me coming into the scientific world, not as a scientist, not as an academic, always makes me sort of like, how, how is that possible? How is it that the most well-evidenced view is seen as fringe and um, you know, based on belief and, and crazy subjective delusions, perhaps, and so on, whilst the, the core dogma is not regarded as a dogma. It's regarded as the truth that science has presented to us. No, for a very clear reason. The reason is that we can make this, right? Um, Here's your proof. Uh -huh. So once you accept that th this is the important thing and the technology that allows us to talk across the, the world, that's proof positive. On the other hand, if you talk to somebody long enough who, who only thinks in, of the world in those, those terms, after a while you can you convince most people that the, that the entire external world, all of the physical properties that we understand, everything we know about astronomy, everything is an inference. It's always an inference because the only thing you know for sure is that you know, right? So, and that's the one thing that for several hundred years science didn't really look at. Yeah, consciousness no, or, the, or the subjectivity was. 
it was an illusion, right? <laughs> so when I still hear some occasionally somebody says, no, all that stuff about consciousness, it's an illusion. So I yeah. say, well, it's an illusion to who? Who's having the illusion? Mm-hmm. So this, of course, is a famous uh, method of Ramana Maharshi, among others, who uh, would, would always use this phrase of, well, who, are, who am I? Ask that question a million times and eventually come to the realization that, that you are everything, right? Mm-hmm. The notion of your, the universe is inside you comes from, partially anyway, without being mystical about it, it is that everything we know is an inference. And this, of course, is born by modern neurosciences just as well. We, we construct the world visually. We construct everything we hear. We construct our body. That's what science tells us. And there's a slight variation on the Maharshi question, which I like, which is, uh, what am I? And it seems that uh, the answer, if we were to put it into a word, might be consciousness. This is where we might end up. And there seems to be a wonderful... Um, I like the, the sort of simile or the metaphor of the, the, the nourishment of our worldviews and that reductive materialism is, is not really meeting all our needs in that regard. And yeah. the worldview that is more of a, a unitive view or where, where consciousness is primary, where the causative um, truth of the human being's thoughts and emotions and, uh, and, and, and beliefs and ideas and within that consciousness, the stories, the narratives and so on. That's just an absolutely different world. So much more nourishing in a world, particularly in the West, maybe it's not a coincidence, we have the most problems with depression and anxiety and so on in Australia, UK, US, where these, this worldview is most uh, predominant. Mm-hmm. It, it seems that within, within mental health, children born into a world where they were taught that they are conscious players in an infinitely expanding universe experiencing itself subjectively. I mean, <laughs> that's a very different narrative, a very different story to be living from. and just feels so much better than the purposeless, random, you know, skin-encapsulated ego, to use the, the Alan Watts phrase. So and I, and I, lo- I just love the way that you didn't hold back when I said, well, what are the implications? Well, this is, this is the change of civilization. This is a complete revision of the very fundamentals of how we have created our, uh, our, our culture and our society. Right. So, and this, this, is, this is really just to speak to it briefly, the, 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 the drive of Love and Truth Party is to offer, a, a, to educate, to elucidate, to, and to celebrate the, the new consciousness, which as a new narrative, as a new worldview, uh, I would articulate as being that consciousness is, is primary. Um, is, is that phrase, consciousness is primary, does that, it seems to fit in with what you've been sharing thus far, and I'm, but I'm keen to sort of be careful with the language that I use and, and perhaps um, be better informed because, of course, you're having to carefully modulate and language how you communicate within the academic world. But is, is that safe ground? Consciousness is primary from your perspective? Yes, but I would, I, I would say that it's primary over what we think of as the physical world. Like I'm using it specifically with this model of putting a new layer under physics, mm-hmm. that level of primary. 
and that I do that, of course, because it's, it's an easy way to describe to an academic why they don't need to throw away their career and their textbooks. Mm-hmm. Everything within each slice is pretty much the same. It has a new underlying basis. And the, the basis is important because just as you have electrons that, can, that emerge into different structures, you have consciousness that emerges into physics and that emerges in different ways into chemistry and biology and so on. So in this, from this perspective, it's hard to wrap your head around it because we're not used to it, but it means it's a structure like the brain ultimately is an expression of consciousness. It happens to be something which is very finely attuned to give us the sense of awareness that we might not have otherwise. Looks like your son has just come out. Yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful effect. It's not quite perfect timing for a podcast, but I'm kind of enjoying it, I have to say. Yeah, yeah it looks like suddenly a, a major illumination is, is happening. <laughs> well, as we speak to this great enlightening moment of consciousness being realized, it's probably... Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, the uh, consciousness as fundamental or consciousness as primary, plus consciousness is non-local. In, in the quantum sense, that it is before space and time. And it's that, that aspect of consciousness which is important in understanding why psychic phenomena and mysticism and magic all make sense. Mm-hmm. Because the one thing about psychic phenomena in particular that causes it to be pushed out of the academic world is that it suggests that there's some aspect of our experience which is not locked in space or time. Up until 100 years ago, we didn't know of anything that was outside of space and time. Well, now in physics, we know that there's all sorts of stuff. In fact, the bottom of, of physicality, as best as we understand it, is not in space-time. It's before it. So it's not, it doesn't become as much of a stretch to imagine that some aspects of our experience also come before space and time. And then suddenly, if that's true, your consciousness is not located anywhere. It's not in space. And it's not even in time anywhere. So precognition and retrocognition and remote viewing and telepathy, all of these phenomena, at least the perceptual type phenomena, suddenly make a lot of sense. They, those kinds of experiences have to exist. So it casts the brain in a very different way. The brain then becomes a, uh, a filter for what we allow ourselves to pay attention to. And when the filter is, is damaged or is suppressed a little bit, as it is in meditation or under certain psychedelic drugs, suddenly the universe opens up because the thing which was compressing our sense of reality is now opened. So from that model, from a consciousness as primary or fundamental model, a lot of things that otherwise are thought of as being fringe suddenly become dead center. Yeah, and one of my um, very practical applications of this, part of the reason I led with the question around healthcare is um, my personal experience, but also, of course, it's, it's the collective experience that's going to be so impacted by this. I, in uh, 2000, and, or in the last few years, have had uh, neuro-oncologists say that my attitude has no, uh, is irrelevant. That in, indeed, my diet's also irrelevant, apparently. But it was really struck me as quite astonishing that, that belief could still be held strongly enough that it could be communicated to a patient that your attitude, your, your consciousness, your, your beliefs and thoughts and emotions was not in any way going to have an impact upon 
your health outcome? Because of course, within that worldview, how would it? It's, 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 it's not, it's not, um, although I would say even within a materialist reductive view, there's plenty of actual ways that you can find causative, uh, you know, Candace Pert's work around the button, you know, molecules of emotion and so on. But so this, this is why I, I find it hard almost to contain my excitement because there is just one slice of, of civilization. And I, I find it, it can be helpful to focus on one slice because it's almost like the changes we're looking at are, are, are so grand and, and, and so complex in terms of the, the, the ripple effects they're going to have, it's hard to, to, to grasp. And I have a question around that, which is we can, we can look at the various evidences from uh, near-death experience, from parapsychological studies, uh, we may or may not throw quantum mechanics in there if we're feeling uh, courageous or um, foolish. Th th foolish, yes. <laughs> it's certainly for a layman like me. I, I feel foolish regularly. Um, we can look at the evidence and go from that route to say, well, a, a new worldview has to be uh, created in order to include all these anomalies. And we can also go the other way and say that materialist reductive worldview is, is incomplete and, and to then be sort of uh, proselytizing is perhaps the wrong word, but articulating uh, a, a unitive view, you know, a, a truly unitive view of physics. And I'm wondering, I, of course, I guess it's both, but is, is there a, a way that you have found to be most effective that people can hear best? Is it to stick with the evidence? Is it to, 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 to offer a new philosophy? I, I sense that's been quite a personal journey for you between the two. I think the, the easiest way to, it, well, actually, I'll, I'll back up a second. It depends entirely on how much people think about their worldview. Most people don't think about worldviews because it, it never even, it's not a subject that ever comes up. You assume that the world is what you see. It's like daily life. So it takes somebody of a, a philosophical mind or somebody who's had a major transformative experience, like a near-death experience or something like that, to really shake them, to shake their belief structure, which, which is the, the lens through which they experience reality. Some, for most people, it requires a major shake to get them to understand that we experience the world in certain ways that we're taught to, and it's reinforced constantly by everyday experience. But that's just one way there's probably an infinite number of ways to experience the world. So if I get the notion, if I say the word epistemology or ontology and the person doesn't give a curious response, like what the hell is that? And, and they know what it means, then it's an easy entree. and start talking about worldviews and ontological differences and all that stuff. Most people don't care about those topics. So I say instead that, uh, it, it, we're presented with things that, that science doesn't be it is not able to explain very well yet. So I, to give an example, I was interviewed by CBS News for a, a program a couple of weeks ago. CBS is one of the big networks in the United States. So I was talking about psychic phenomena, how we have a pretty good idea in the laboratory uh, that these things exist and how we know it. And so she kept asking in different ways, but how do you explain it? And so I, I avoided answering that question because I knew it would immediately have to draw us into this notion of philosophy, of, of your, your sense of what do you assume is real and how do you assume it? 
and that doesn't work on TV, especially in a news show. There's not enough time to talk about it. So I basically said, well, why, why do you need an explanation? Right? We can, we sh people have these experiences. We can show them in the laboratory. There are lots of things we don't understand yet. Only recently we understood how aspirin worked. And for 700 years, nobody had any idea how magnetism worked, but they still used it. So we're, we're in a, a funny period of history, I think, where people, actually, this is probably true throughout history, where the esoteric tradition uh, came up with a lot of superstitions and nonsense to give an explanation. How did this happen? Well, because the witch made it happen. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not true where we have bad humors and the bad humors is what makes you feel sick. So I think the, what will happen in the shorter term is that materialism will continue to, to expand. It always has. It's continually expanding as we push out in physics and push out in every direction. We are, sub, we are constantly surprised by what we encounter at the edge and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. If you think of it as pushing down pushing down into more and more fundamentals, which is mainly done in physics, but it's done in other domains as well. I think you're gonna see more and more people beginning to, to bump up against the idea that you cannot extract consciousness from the edge of science. You can't have a complete science. You certainly can't have a theory of everything if you exclude the one and only thing that we actually know. More and more people are talking about this, and I, I think that's healthy because what it'll eventually say is materialism is not going to go away. It's too useful. Mm -hmm. It will expand, and it'll expand at some point that when you look at it from a distance, you'll say, oh, they're talking about idealism. It has certain structure within, mm -hmm. within the idealism, but if you talk to most scientists about that at this point, they don't have any idea what you're talking about, and they don't want to hear it either. So I if the person I'm talking to is a skeptical scientist, I probably won't go there. Uh -huh. And nevertheless, I do devote like an entire chapter in this book. So mm -hmm. we'll see what happens. That's beautiful. And uh, yeah, April the 10th for Real Magic uh, coming out, just to reiterate that for everyone in all good bookstores. And deanradin.org is the, a really good resource to, to check out your work in more detail and get the full bio and the other books and so on as well. But there's just something I wanted to speak to around the worldview so he that most people don't consider they don't uh, take out their worldviews and, and do a sort of a Descartian discarding of, of, of apples of ideas and only getting back in to their consciousness what they consider to be valid or true and funnily enough part of the reason we don't do that is because our worldview doesn't make that so important but a worldview that makes consciousness primary and therefore our inner world causative in a more fundamental way than we've previously considered, then the assessing of our worldviews, the lenses through which we experience and create reality, becomes very, very important because we now recognize it's causative. So you can choose to believe that you're a sinner and inherently guilty and unworthy and so on. Um, that will have an effect, however, upon your physiology. You can choose to believe that you are... Um, you know, one aspect of an infinitely expensive, non-local, um, maybe purposeful, um, subjective experience. God, we could even say, to, to really throw the cat amongst the pigeons. And th these, I, I, just, I, just, um, I just find that interplay fascinating. The idea that the human being, as consciousness itself expands and becomes more aware, 
might consciously create themselves, consciously create the human being through this awareness. And I'm sort of seeing this as a, you know, a, a downstream effect potentially. That as the worldview develops, as the evidence builds, and of course as a, the, the two feed on each other, as the more research is given to the, these sorts of uh, areas that would have otherwise previously been considered fringe, there is now uh, a, a greater awareness perhaps, and I guess we're now talking a, hundred, a few hundred years, of, of the power of the human being of the actual causative, creative power of the human being. Um, it brings to mind, there's a, a Christian phrase that uh, you know, the human being is made in God's image. Uh, and this, this idea of God as creator. And I'm not sure where I'm going with the question in that, but to, 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 to tie it in with the personal transformative experience, collectively we're going through a fair bit of um, transformation. There's a fair few pressure points to say the least. And I'd like perhaps as we, as we uh, move to wrapping up to invite your opinion, your perspective on, on, on how that converges, the, the, the collective pressures and crises. It, my, my naive um, hope is that perhaps that might be the pressure that causes a collective transformation in some way. Is, is this just you know, a, re a residue of hippie thinking or, or is there perhaps some reason or, or logic that we might be able to feel this, this could be true? That is collectively everything's under so much pressure that could be the fuel for big change. Well, that is a, a residue of hippie thinking, but it's also correct. <laughs> and, and unless you have, you, you imagine that we're a gigantic ocean liner with an enormous amount of, of inertia that pushes in one direction. And the direction we're going is going to fall off a, a waterfall or a cliff. How do you change that? It's extremely difficult to change. There's just so much inertia behind it and so many vested interests in place that nobody wants to change it. I mean, we individually may want to change a few things, but do I want to give up 90% of what I take for granted? No. So you multiply that by 7 billion and nothing changes. It's a lot so of you, you, need, you need major crises. I mean, history shows this again and again. You, a major crisis will cause a change, cause a big change. So we're heading towards major crises. We're, we're going to see hundreds of millions of people who are refugees because they're living too close to the ocean. Uh, we're probably going to see all kinds of strange diseases starting to happen uh, because of you know, the polar caps that are melting and all kinds of reasons. So uh, if, if we're lucky enough to survive, we'll probably both see evolutionary pressure to change, physically to change, uh, maybe mentally as well. Uh, the, the danger in all of this, though, is that the moment that you begin to crumble the structures that allow people with the luxury, like I have, I'm, I, I consider what I do extremely luxurious because I don't have to worry about shelter and food and so on. I can uh, afford to explore the edge of the known. But if you take that away, nobody can do that, and you devolve very quickly into medieval times. So the hope is that, that somebody somewhere has the equivalent of a cloud 
uh, like a memory cloud up there where, where information is being stored so that when we go through a period perhaps where civilization just crumbles for a couple hundred years or 10,000 years, that the next time people don't have to start from scratch. So, I mean, that's a pessimistic viewpoint, but given just simply the way that inertia works, it, it doesn't look like we can escape it at this point. I mean, just, just recently, the 25 years ago, there was uh, warnings given by scientists around the world about what is happening in terms of the climate 25 years ago. And at the time, there's something like seven or 800 people who signed on it. Here we are 25 years later and something like 50,000 scientists have signed on to something which is a warning that we are headed towards a major problem. And yet what we see, especially in the United States, I don't know how it else it is elsewhere, but we, we have an administration now that basically saying, we don't believe any of that. They just prefer not to believe it because it's doing something about it is going to change how people live. So there's an enormous amount of inertia pushing and other than something major happening, like the aliens showing up and saying, you better do something, I don't think much is going to change. I wish I, that was not the case because I'm a chronic optimist. I want things to change. I, I, I would rather that we all go in a direction of a, a meaningful, personal, loving world. And maybe, as I mean, there's some evidence that 10% of the population is all that's necessary. You get 10% of the people to, to act and think in a certain way and everybody else will just follow. That may be true. And that may be the way that we get out without having to destroy everything. I think that there can only be gains and advantages from the work that you're doing and really spreading the message and sharing the evidence of this purposeful uh, universe and of the individual power as well. And again, Love and Truth Party, that's part of our mission is to um, ideally uh, create full, facilitate full enlightenment in you know, a few hundred thousand people and, and that'll, that'll take care of everything. Either that or the aliens appear and, uh, and uh, provide the, the direction for us. But Dean, I'm, I know that you have uh, your schedule, of course, today. I'm so grateful for the time that you've given us and so grateful for the work that you have done over the years. And I really encourage everyone to read all of your books. I'm, I'm personally a great fan and particularly, of course, uh, Real Magic that's coming out on April the 10th. So thank you. And, and I think I did mention, but yeah, deanradin.org is the website for people who are keen to find out more about your work. So thank, thank you for being on the show today. I, I greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. And just to our viewers, if you've enjoyed this production and would like to support the creation of more similar programming and feel resonance with the call to be of service to an emergent human culture, please join us, download Love Letters, sign up for our newsletter, like and follow on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all the usuals, and consider a financial gift to support our work at loveandtruthparty.org. Thank you to all our supporters and contributors. Together, we are creating kind, conscious, courageous human community.